morning and welcome to HR Tech Weekly, One Step Closer with Stacey Harris and John Sumter. Hi, Stacey. How are you? Morning, John. I'm doing well. I am trying not to float away here in North Carolina today. Uh, we've got flash flood warnings going on here in North Carolina. Pretty drizzly, dreary day, but I'll take it. It's in November. Better than getting snow uh, as they're getting up north. How about you guys? Are things clearing out? The air getting a little bit fresher there in California? Getting a little bit of downtime after the craziness of HR Tech the last couple of weeks? Yeah. Well, I don't know about the downtime, but now that the air is fresher, <laughs> it's time to go back into serious lockdown. So, yeah, well, this is just the year. It is. Yeah. So now that you're recovered from HR Tech, what did you see in that flurry of activity? So, what's the thing you most remember? Boy, you know, the thing I most remember about the HR Tech conference itself, I think, was the conversations that happened around the session. I, I don't know how better to explain that, but the kind of emails and follow-ups I've gotten after the HR Tech conference, I always get a lot of follow-ups. Oh, I think any analyst or any any speaker does. You get kind of like, oh, you did a great job. This is great. But I've gotten more follow-ups from organizations that normally wouldn't have had the chance, I think, to spend the $1,200 or $1,500, right, to participate. So definitely a lot more SMB outreach from organizations, definitely a lot more individuals who are just testing the waters about whether or not either their product or their company is interested in investing in HR technology. And so that's been sort of interesting. And, that, and that's what's coming through most is that it's just a broader audience, I think, that we reached with this virtual HR technology. You know, there's still a lot of the same. A lot of the people who I've normally spoken to at HR technology, I've now, I'm now doing briefings with them and I'm doing follow-ups and getting a lot of uh, good comments about the report. But yeah, this new group is, I'm seeing different things, different problems, different challenges. Now, it could also be partially because of 2020 and COVID. I don't know if that's part of it, too, is just the wonkiness of what is 2020, but definitely a little bit of a different audience. How about you? Because you were doing a little different kind of presentation this year, right? Normally, you have a big focus on the artificial intelligence and the, and the companies who are doing that. You shifted to the ethics conversation this year. Are you seeing a different audience at all in, in the outreach to you? Well, I'm seeing a reasonably interesting level of company doing artificial intelligence. So I didn't really shift out of the artificial intelligence conversation, but I focused almost exclusively on the ethical part of it. And yeah. there are companies who are very interested in understanding and exploring the use of ethics as a decision-making tool in their product development environments. And so I'm talking to a bunch of those kinds of companies as a result of the talk. Ethics is one of those phrases that makes people run away. Uh, <laughs> you know, yes, it does. <laughs> the tech market is full of people who want to move fast and break things. Uh, yes. I think the ethics conversation is the advanced front of the move slow and fix things approach to technical development. Because you cannot release, well, you, of course you can, you should not release AI that's built under the premise that you move fast and break things. Because badly wrought, badly understood artificial intelligence implementations make bigger messes than other kinds of things. And so you want to be very careful about what you release. And that's not the mindset of many of the players who are in the AI business in our space. They're just going fast. 
Yeah, it's an interesting conversation, right? Because I think not only is it a ethics and AI conversation around the technology that organizations are thinking about, I'm also seeing a little bit of a shift in the conversation about sort of even how we think about purchasing those conver- those kind of technologies. Organizations are being a little bit more hesitant. Now, I think some of this is because of the social movement that's happening, at least here in the United States, but really globally. People are being very careful that they are not picking up a tool or a technology that will give an adverse effect inside their organization, which I think is also causing some of that conversation. Do do you think that it's the customers who are driving some of this cautionary focus, or do you think it's truly people are realizing that they've got a responsibility in the market? That's a great question. I don't know the answer to it. I really don't know the answer to it. I have not met. There are a few. There are a few. Um, In my work at the conference board, I talked with a bunch of HR tech leaders the other day, and that group would understand the question and put this sort of pressure. But the typical HR buyer is not ready to have this conversation with their vendor. So I don't think it's coming from them. I think it's coming from capable technical providers who understand that this isn't software, that this is something new. So I do think that that's changing, but it isn't uniform. I would say a fair number of technical providers view the idea that they should have an ethics component in their design process to be burdensome because... Yes, unfortunately, but yes. They're used to moving fast and breaking things. When those things turn out to be human lives, it's not such a good thing. Yeah. And so yeah. the early days of the change, I figure it's a couple to three years ahead of the market. And that means if you want to grab an early position and be understood as pioneering, this is the time that you do that. And if you want to wait till it's very clear that everybody else is doing it so you can be a me too, and that the right time is a couple of years from now. Yeah. Jumping right in now, if you're not willing to invest in the kind of upfront work would not be advisable, I think. Yeah. Well, we've definitely seen, I mean, I saw a lot of questions come from those SMB systems who were interested and many of them are playing and the word is the good word is playing with artificial intelligence right now and they've got a couple of cool data scientists and a couple of young kids who are doing cool things and you know you hope that they get the message that this is an important component of what what's happening i, I don't know i don't know if they will oh or not, i right? think they will I, I think ultimately you won't be able to operate in the 21st century with 20th century ideas right and the idea that decisions are something that come down from on high and are made in a hierarchical fashion that idea its utility really ended the day we went into lockdown That's not how you do distributed decision-making. And that doesn't mean that there isn't an entire generation of managers who only know how to manage by dictating decisions. But the correct way to manage going forward is to understand that no decision is permanent and all decisions have unanticipated consequences. And so you have to be constantly watching those things in a factory environment once you got the factory up and running then you could just focus on improving product quality and this was the great idea behind workflows in the office that you could get information to behave like factory and it doesn't it doesn't that was the idea of workflows in the office 
was a transitional idea as we moved from factory automation to this age that we're in today. But it got really broken. The workflow doesn't make so much sense if there aren't enough repeatable processes, right? You have to have standardization if you're doing something over and over and over again. But the businesses of today, the really interesting businesses of today, don't produce widgets. They produce value that varies from implementation to implementation, and that doesn't really fit the workflow idea. And so we're watching this change happen, and the people who hang on to 20th century ideas will end up out of business sooner than the people who embrace 21st century ideas. Yeah. In all honesty, when I think about what information is, instead of sort of process-driven and workflow-driven, it very much to me is much more like an organism. It's much more biological in how it reacts because once it gets out and gets added to and people you know, put their own perceptions on it, it creates something new and then it shifts to something else and then it goes somewhere else. It sort of goes and moves. And so it's very much, if you think of it like an ever-changing organism, which I think is what you were talking about, which is that every day is a little different. Every decision gets changed by what is happening with that information and that concept as it's flowing out into the market. I think it can feel very scary for those of us who were brought up in a very structured, process-driven world where, you know, you went to school at eight in the morning, you had classes that were scheduled, you left, you know, three o'clock, you went home and watched the same three channels that everybody else watched. This world is just almost like a massive amoeba that's just shifting constantly now as far as information goes. That's right. That's right. And that's sort of the nature of the service industry. And as elaborate as you want to make it, what we are mostly engaged in is service work of varying sizes and dimensions. And there's not a lot of granular consistency in that stuff. It's consistent in shape, but it's not consistent in its specifics. And so it's really hard to manage it with, you know, one of the things that gets often categorized as AI is the process automation stuff. Process automation stuff is just scripting. Mm -hmm. It's smart scripting sometimes, but it's scripting. And so uh, process automation assumes that there are factory-like components to the work, and that may or may not be true. Well, that actually leads us into a lot of what's going on in our in our conversation this week with as far as the, the news that's going on in HR tech. I mean, one of the big stories was a smart recruiter, or maybe not a big story, depends on how you look at it, entering what they call the RPA market, which they're calling recruiting process automation, which RPA in other contexts would be known as robotic process automation. So I think depending on how you look at that acronym, with the acquisition of a company called JobPal. We're also seeing similar conversations, though, I think, with other acquisitions being made over the last several weeks. SAP acquired an omni-channel customer engagement leader called Emersys. Now, some people may not consider that an HR conversation. I really do because I'm seeing the conversation about communications enter the HR world a lot more than it has in the past. Same thing with the healthcare, as you've noticed. I'm seeing communications really ramp up. And I think this move by SAP will be interesting to see how they roll that into the work they're doing with Qualtrics. We're also seeing some interesting stuff from Ceridian adding a benefits intelligence tool, so get a little more AI, to Dayforce. Planful, which is a planning application expanding continuous planning offerings, announcing new workforce planning and capabilities for HR leaders. Again, a small organization, not always seen as part of the HR ecosystem, now entering it from a workforce planning perspective. I had a similar conversation with the people over at Anaplan this week. 
So I think we're going to see a lot of conversations about where does workforce planning sit. And then we've got some interesting news from HiBob, which announces the addition of compensation management tool to their stack if people are following the small business market. And Textio's latest target, um, non-inclusive language, they're targeting non-inclusive language and employer branding content. So for those who know Textio, they kind of look at how you do your job descriptions and how you do your job environment and let you know when you're using language that sort of is either biased or causing issues with finding the people that you want to find. They're now looking at this from a larger branding context. And then if we get a little bit of time, and we may even start here, there's a lot of stuff going on this last couple of weeks with wearable technology again. That conversation started out about two, three years ago with the Fitbits and everybody loved them and everybody wanted it. And then everybody kind of died down because they realized just tracking activity wasn't doing a whole lot. There was a lot of data privacy issues there. Well, it's rearing its head again. Habit Aware's a smart bracelet, Keen 2, is being launched to curb compulsive habits. I had a conversation with another vendor this week who's using this in the correctional institution market and is thinking about bringing some kind of wearable compulsion technology tracking into the corporate market. A little scary and definitely an ethical conversation there. So lots of this stuff going on, John, that we just talked about, but sort of embedded in different ways in the traditional HR technologies and some of these new platforms. Any of these jump out of you as as sort of big conversations that we need to cover today? Well, you know, I got to tell you, I am super excited. I bet it'll get here today or tomorrow. I have a Amazon Halo coming. And an Amazon Halo is a wearable that doesn't have a display. So it's a little thing that you wear on your wrist in addition to your watch. And it's got some amazing capabilities. It's got some just incredibly amazing capabilities. You know, the the idea, one of the big problems with wearables is the same thing that we've been talking about in this conversation. They make all these assumptions about what is or isn't a person and what is or isn't healthy. Yeah. And all of that stuff is contextual. And so the Halo includes a module. You set it up with the camera on your phone and take pictures of your body. And it gives you a set of data that's associated with your body. Interesting. And so there's a a notion, you know, body mass index is sort of the surrogate measure for health at its simplest. And body mass index doesn't tell you things like when I get in a swimming pool, I sink. <laughs> there's, there's nothing about me that floats. And the reason that I sink is the density of my bones is greater than average. The standard issue of human being has lower density bones, so they float. And so when you do my body mass index, it doesn't really take that into account. Yeah. And this new thing, does and it allows you to imagine and focus on the changes that you want to have by accurately presenting a picture of yourself. So it does that and then it does an incredibly deep job of sleep monitoring, which is where I first started getting interested in wearables. And if you let it, it will analyze the tone of your voice in speaking so that you can get a sense of how other people hear you and give you feedback about what it's like. You know, are you sort of whiny and repetitive or are you boomy and authoritarian? I don't know because I haven't played with it yet, but it does a tone analysis of your voice 
And then they champion the idea that it doesn't have a screen because the data that it collects, you don't really want to see it all the time. You want to see it every day or two. Yeah. And so it's just a monitor. It's just instrumentation. And I think it's pretty exciting. So I understand the ethical concerns about tracking data, but I'm not sure that that's a train that you can stop from running. It may be offensive to 20th century ideation about what privacy is and isn't, but I'm not sure that you can get away with the idea that there won't be monitoring in the 21st century. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I mean, first of all, we always love that, John, you always buy the newest gadgets first. You let us know, like, we were really glad you got Google Glass because none of us had to go out and buy that. So thank you. We'll see how this works. (laughs) We love your desire to see the newest fun stuff. Secondly, I think you're right on there with that conversation. I did an interview, someone had called me, they wanted to do an interview on what's the future of HR. And we kind of went through a series of questions. And they said, what's the big difference? And I said, you know, to me, the big difference is more of a concept about how we think about data privacy that's coming down the road that I don't think we've realized. We have a whole generation, definitely the Generation X and the generations before that were sort of built on the idea that your personal data is your own and your privacy is the most important thing you have to manage and you have to make sure that it's not shared because it was how people took advantage of you in some sense. My kids, and I'm sure you're seeing the same thing in your kids, my kids don't believe, don't think about data privacy the way we think about it. They definitely think about data privacy more as a transactional economic factor. They see value in their data. They see value in the decisions they're making. They want people to know who they are sometimes and sometimes they don't. They want to have the option to have those exchanges around their data. And they're very open to the idea that things will be tracking them and comfortable with it as long as they know about it and understand it. And they're much more savvy about the conversation, or at least they believe they are. And I mean, they were the ones that first brought up to me browsing an incognito, didn't even know that existed until my kids brought it up. So I think we are, we're going to see a huge shift. You know, I think the millennials are somewhere in the middle. Those who are in the 30 are somewhere in between this struggle because they've got their parents screaming, don't share anything. And their kids saying, hey, I want to be able to get this from this advertiser. I want to be able to get this and I'm willing to share my information. It is a true cultural shift that we're entering here with a data privacy perspective. But I think it's going to open up the world in a way that we just haven't even begun to imagine when you start thinking about your data as an economic exchange more than privacy conversation. Does that feel like it fits what you're seeing as well, though, John? Well, there's really two pieces of this. You know, I am and have been for a very long time somebody who tracks whatever data I can get about myself because it helps me better understand myself. So I think that we will see generations of way more self-aware people. And imagine if you can analyze my voice and you can analyze my sleep patterns and you can analyze my body composition, how long is it till there's a tool that will help me understand if the language that I'm using is non-inclusive or discriminatory, right? So imagine the Mm -hmm. Textio module that is integrated in my new Amazon Halo and it listens to what I say and says, you know, Every time you use that turn of phrase, here's how some people will hear it. You might want to think about adjusting your output. And so Mm -hmm. the idea that I can have real-time feedback about how I'm doing without it being goal-oriented, just here's how you're doing, that's, I think, pretty interesting to me. The question of who gets to look at that, 
That's pretty interesting. So I've got to tell you about something cool that's happening at my healthcare provider. I'm a Kaiser Permanente member. And on the 1st of January, from the 1st of January forward, I will be able to read every single word that's put into my medical record. And about the middle of the year, they're going to give me access to every single word that was already written in my medical record. Because wow. when I go to Kaiser, everybody looks at the standard medical record. Now, the great thing about Kaiser is that there's one medical record, so all of the doctors are looking at the same data. And they realize that the person who's missing from that conversation is the patient. And so they're going to make the data available to patients so that when I get on the phone with my doctor, which is how we do it, I can say, oh, I saw this note in the record. Or remember when we changed the prescription this way? Here's the result of that. Let's talk about what we do next. And it allows me to be a much more educated consumer of my own health care. Now, right there is the privacy question in a nutshell, which is, does sharing the information about who I am and what I'm doing make the environment that I'm in easier to navigate? And, you know, I think most people born in the middle of the last century have this idea that privacy is the sort of, if you pull the curtains down, nobody can see in idea. And the reality is the curtains don't work anymore. (laughs) you're naked get used to it yeah and the problem isn't that you're naked the problem is whether or not somebody can do something pernicious the things that you're embarrassed or ashamed of and that's actually not a privacy conversation but it's what's underneath most privacy conversations Well, and that gets back to, I think, the ethical conversation. I mean, I think a lot of the stuff, even the item that we're seeing from the vendors this week, you know, almost all of them are dealing with better ways to make decisions. They're adding tools that will help us better analyze data or better see data in different places or make better decisions through intelligent tools. But I'm not sure any of them are really focusing on the bigger question, which is how do we manage our data? which I think is the conversation I'm hearing from my kids that they really expect from their technology today is I can't hide it. I just want to be able to understand who's seeing it and understand how it could be used against me. It's more of a manner of knowing and making some decisions about what I want to share and what I don't want to share in a context, in different contexts. So I think what we're going to see is a lot more conversation about data management and governance, which you and I have talked a lot about. But I don't see that coming quite from the vendors yet. I see them still focusing on functionalities, tools for analyzing the data and aggregating the data. I don't think they've quite gotten to this side of the conversation, at least in the HR space yet. Yeah, no, I don't think it's happening anywhere yet. And the big incumbents, even the newer additions to the enterprise software business, you know, Workday's 20 years old now. It's not like they're a new young player. It's not like they're an agile young startup. That time has passed in Workday's history. And this new kind of thinking that you're talking about, that'll come from people who are not built to be enterprise software systems. Yeah, but it's coming. It's coming. Well, this has been a fun conversation. We're going to look forward to seeing what your halo is like, John. You'll have to let us all know when you get it. So, (laughs) Oh, I'm excited. I am hoping that it's today or tomorrow that it shows up. And then I'll know how to get a better night's sleep. (laughs) That's the hope, right? Don't we all? If you get that figured out, you let us all know. (laughs) Yeah. 
So thanks for doing this, Stacey, and thanks, everybody, for listening in. Another great conversation. You've been listening to HR Tech Weekly, One Step Closer with Stacey Harris and John Subcher. This was our 292nd show. See you back here next week, same time. Bye-bye. Thanks, everyone. Bye.